0: pray then like this Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into not into temptation but deliver us from evil So in Jesus instruction here he's giving a model prayer for his disciples to follow It's not you need to follow this prayer word for word. He's saying in this manner, pray. And he gives us some things to pray about and some key issues to pray about. And the one I want to focus on this morning that's been on my mind a lot lately is what he says in verse 11. He says, give us this day our daily bread. For me, that hasn't meant a whole lot in the past. I kind of read over it. And I didn't really see the big significance. He's talking about some big things like forgiveness of sins. He's talked about temptation. He's talked about God's kingdom coming, the church coming down to earth. And this daily bread just kind of seemed like, yeah, our daily bread that seems simple and irrelevant when I read over it. But the things he's talking about in this simple, short explanation, I feel like are all very important. So I wanted to dive in and see more about this. I want to, Before we move on, I just want to note what he said here. Do not heap up empty phrases in prayer. And that's something I find myself guilty of all the time. <clears throat> I just found myself guilty of it this week. I was sitting there praying, and I felt like I was getting more anxious as I prayed. I was just heaping things up. I wasn't really talking to God with meaning. And that's what this. I think the whole focus of our study is going to do, is to get us some, some focused meaning on our daily bread and what this means. So I want to go back into the Old Testament. We learn from the New Testament that the Old Testament was something that we can learn from so that we can gain hope and we can gain understanding through. And what I want to look at is the time in in God's people's history when the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt. What happened in those those events, you remember, Moses was called by God in chapter 5 of Exodus. Moses said, God, uh, God said, Moses, I'm going to have you lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. You're going to get my people out of the bondage, out of the slavery that they're in. We can read about that in history. This was, these were events that happened. And in chapters 8 through 12 of Exodus, God sends the plagues. You may have heard of those, the, the 10 plagues, where, where God struck uh, the land of Egypt with plagues and with problems because he was trying to show Pharaoh, you better let my people go. And if you won't let them go, I'm going to rain down on you. And he put plagues on, on, on Egypt. And Pharaoh had to to give way and he had to to decide, okay, you can let my people, I will let your people go because I cannot suffer these plagues anymore. That was the whole premise of the plagues. In chapter 14, the Israelites are finally let go. They get away, they're celebrating, and then they get to the Red Sea. Pharaoh's armies are coming behind them to catch them. He said he was going to let them go, but he ends up chasing after them. God's people get to the edge of the Red Sea and they're stuck. And what happens there? Maybe you remember, Moses struck his staff in the ground and the Red Sea parted. And God's people went through the Red Sea. Some, as we understand, 7,000 feet deep this Red Sea was. God's people went through the sea on dry land with walls of water above them as they walked through. Amazing things that happened Miraculously. And in chapter 15 of Exodus, God's people get to the other side, God closes the water behind them so that, the, so that the army that was behind them is washed away by the ocean, by the Red Sea. And they get to the other side, they're celebrating, they're singing this song of the sea, how God has, has sent the horse and rider into the ocean, He has trampled our enemies under His feet. And there is this great rejoicing by God's people. And then we get to the period that we're really going to focus on, the wilderness, God's people get through this, Uh, the the army behind them is destroyed, they're free, they're on the other side, they're free and clear. But that's not where the story ends. What happens then is the children of Israel go into a period of, of, of time called the wandering. They're out in the wilderness. And in this time of wandering, we learn some very interesting lessons for our own lives as we compare them to the children of Israel. And in chapter 16 of this period is where we're going to pick up. And it reads there in Exodus chapter 16, verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So what's happening here is the people get out in the wilderness and they get hungry. They get thirsty and they get afraid. And while this God that just delivered them did some great things, they're now in a position where they're like, hey, yeah, you delivered us, but now we're going to die of hunger. And they're confused. And they complain against the leaders, Moses and Aaron, and say, we just wish we would have died in Egypt. And they say, you know, we sat by the meat pots. There was plenty of food there. Really? Because the people of of Israel, when they were in Egypt, complained because of how great the burden was on them. They complained about how they had to do harder and harder work with less and less support, and it was a huge burden for for a long time for for the Israelites. They get out, and now they're saying, man, we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. We had whatever we wanted there. That's not really the case. They have selective memory. They're thinking back, man, it used to be so good, but it really wasn't. But regardless, they're complaining now. They need food. In verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they begin, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So what's going on? They have this hunger, and God says, Okay, I'm going to take care of it. He says, I'm going to send bread from heaven. And this is how. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he says here, remember this. That they're going to go out and gather this bread every day. So that God's going to test them whether they'll walk in his law or not. Verse 7, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? So Moses says, this is what's going to happen. This is how you're supposed to take this manna when it comes to you. And he said, you're going to see God is who he said he is, and he hasn't left you. And it's interesting is the children of Israel grumbled, but God still provided. He heard them, and he provided for them. That's going to be important as we go through this. And so what happens? In verse 13, "In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, as fine as frost on the ground." This is the manna. This is what we talked about in the beginning. This is this manna. And he says, it came on the ground like a frost-like thing. So, so when the dew left, there was this frost. And in Numbers, it tells us that it was like coriander seed and like delium stones. And so it was this grainy substance. When the other, verse 15, when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. They saw this, this man on the ground, this grainy substance, and they're like, what is it? And that's what the word manna means. The word manna literally means, what is it? And that's something that I think we can all relate to. Is when God provides for our needs, it's never in the way we really think it's going to happen. We're like, what? That's how God did that? What's God doing here? We don't understand. We don't quite get it. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. An omer is about a gallon, if you figure it to our uh, terms of measuring. So they were told to each person gather a gallon of this manna to survive a day. So I'm going to pause right here and try to gather some meaning for us from this. As we look back at the children of Israel, the things I want to focus on are the wilderness and the manna. There's a lot of different things that happen, but the wilderness. What is this wilderness? The wilderness is a place where God's people felt a lot of things that were new to them. It's where they felt lost. It's where they, it's where they felt discouraged. It's where they felt confused. Imagine if you were them, you got out into this foreign land, and yes, you're free from Egypt, but you're also exposed. You had had a sense of normalcy in Egypt. You had a sense of routine and a sense of your life. You had a sense of where your food was gonna come from, and all of a sudden you're lost, you're out in the middle of nowhere. And they picked up and they took everything with them, they took their families with them. They took their their herds and their flocks with them. What if all of your, your life was just suspended like that? And all of your family, you had to provide for your family, and all of a sudden you don't know where that's gonna come from. Imagine how they felt. Lost, discouraged, confused, disoriented, and they faced the unknown. They didn't know what was going to happen out in the wilderness. They didn't know where they were going. They didn't know what God was going to do. God had everything still to prove, still to show them. How much does that feel like our life? How often do you feel discouraged, confused, lost, whether you're a believer in God or not? We all go through confusion. We don't know what to do. We're trying to figure out how to get through this life, Right? They're just like us. But in Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, God tells us what this wilderness really meant. What it was the purpose of it was. He says there, The whole commandment that I command you today you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply, and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years In the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So, what happens is God sends them out and he says, You're gonna go out and you're gonna go get the promised land. Not only am I gonna free you from the Israelite, from the Egyptians, excuse me, I'm gonna free you, but then I'm gonna give you a new land. I'm gonna give you a promised land. But in between getting free from the Egyptians and getting to the promised land, He said, I'm going to send you through a wilderness so that I might humble you. And that's something we need to remember about this. That the wilderness, the struggles they faced, the confusion, the trials they faced were not a punishment to them originally. It was supposed to be something that God used to humble them. And I'm here to tell you this morning, a wilderness is something we all have. It's something we all face. And the reason it's there is God says it's there to humble us. It was there to teach, to put us in our place so that we can learn to turn to God. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that I, that it should leave me. Paul had a, had something going on. He says a thorn in the flesh, something he dealt with all the time, and he asked God to take it away from him. Please take this away from me. I don't want to have to go through this. But he says it was to keep him from becoming conceited. He had to go through something to keep him humble. He goes on the same verse nine, but. But although he had asked for God to get rid of, get this away from him, to make him not have to go through this, he says, but. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This is the same idea of the wilderness. The wilderness was something that God showed that used on the children of Israel to show them that they needed to be humbled before him. To show them that they needed to to rely on God. And this is the same thing Paul says. Paul says, I came to a great need. I came to face my struggle and ask God to to free me from it. But he said no. Because that moment of weakness, when Paul felt his most weak, that's when he turned to God. That's when he had to rely on God. He was humble before God. And in that moment where Paul felt his weakest, he turned to God. That's when he was his strongest. Can you relate to that? I can. Verse 10, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, with hardships, with persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Weaknesses. Usually I don't think of weaknesses as something that like God is using. Sometimes I just feel like, you know what, God wants me to be here, but I'm over here. And it just feels like a Separation. But our weakness is not just something that makes us different from God. It's something that makes us turn to God. Because when I'm weak, then I have to. When I see my own end, I have to go to God. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is a similar idea James hits on in James chapter 1, verse 2. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The writer James tries to hone us in on this idea that your your difficulty, don't waste it. Don't look at it like it's not worth anything. Our difficulty is something that God uses to train us, to mold us, and to make us grow. In its full effect, we become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And there's this, this idea of the children of Israel in the wilderness is common throughout the Bible. And it's something everyone faces. It's just whether or not the Bible really expands upon it or not. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, we have David. David is anointed at a young age by, uh, by the prophet that he will become king of God's people. And there's this great to do. He is anointed and everything seems great. And all of a sudden, David rises to power, Right? No, David, the greatest king that would ever live, the greatest warrior, the the people of God ever had. What happened after he was anointed king? Nothing. He went back to tending his sheep. He didn't take off in power and all of a sudden everything was great and everything was was growing. David went back to tending his sheep. He went back to be a stable kid. But God used this time when David was was just going about his daily life doing normal things. God used it for great things. Because do you remember David, when he is going to fight Goliath, he now has the faith to take on Goliath because he said, you don't know what's happened. God came and helped me when my my sheep were about to be attacked. I killed the lion and the bear with my bare hands. And it's in this time of, of waiting before David was king That he grew his faith by by things like this, like the lion and the bear that he killed with his own bare hands. Things that strengthened his faith in the time between when he was anointed king and the time between his life actually took off. There was an in-between time where God grew his faith. Where God showed him that God was there for him. When that bear came after him, when that lion came after him, those struggles he went through grew his faith. What about Paul? We look at Paul in the New Testament and we're like, man, he just, he did so much and he did, he was one of the greatest leaders the church ever had. He was one of the earliest apostles, wrote most of our Bible, of our New Testament. And it seems like he was just always with it, right? Always on top. Well, Paul was converted, actually. Paul came from the other side. He came from people who are opposing Christians. And when he was converted, then it all happened, right? No. We learn in Galatians 11 what actually happened. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He's like, I was doing good on the other side. I had a great. And then what happened? But when, he, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach to him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. What did he just say there? He said, when I was converted, I didn't go straight to all the big, all the apostles. I didn't link up with them and get all this fame. No, he said, I went first away to these other places. And then what happened? Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. Three years of waiting before he went up. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. He says, I'm telling the truth. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. Paul was kind of irrelevant. He was converted. And we see the end and we're like, man, he turned out great. But there's a period. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barabbas, taking Titus along with me. So he goes on to say that he ended up, yes, getting involved in the work, yes, growing, yes, having success. But there was 14 years after he was converted, before anything happened for him. God uses the white spaces in our life between one thing and another for good. It's in these white spaces, this 14 years between the big events in Paul's life, that God formed him. He was a 14-year intern. How discouraging would that have been? You know, you wonder, if if I'm working for God, nothing's happening. I don't see the results. I don't see the benefits. I don't see God, maybe, working in this. It it took Paul 14 years before anything really happened for him. In the Bible, there's a lot said between the white spaces, between this happened and, and something else happened. We see that both in David's life before he was king in the life of Paul, one of the early church's greatest men. And sometimes the Bible zooms in on this period, like we just saw. These periods where we can learn in the, in the wilderness is one of those periods where the Bible zooms in on the children of Israel and says, yes, they were freed. Yes, they ended up 40 years later in the promised land. But there's a period of time in between that was really hard, it was difficult. But what's the meaning in these? Acts 17, verse 25 through 27 says this. Speaking of God, nor is he worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and boundaries of our dwellings. He's saying God is over all of this. He sees it all. He's working it all. He is the one turning it all. But in verse 27, he says that this all happens so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. The wilderness in your life, the struggles in your life, the trying to make this all work, trying to figure it all out, is where you and I are supposed to grope for God. What what, what does groping mean? When you're in the dark... Looking for your phone to try to get a flashlight to see what's, what's, what you're looking for? You're groping for things. You put your hands and you feel around to try to get something familiar to find out where you're at. and you, You're confused. You, you're disoriented in the dark. That's often how we feel. That's the nature of what God puts us through. But it's in that groping for Him. It's in that groping for Him that we find Him. And it's in the wilderness that we grope for God and we look for Him. And He says that He is not far from each one of us. So one of the lessons we learn from the wilderness is to not waste your wilderness. Don't look at your wilderness, whatever you're going through, like it's not worth it. Like, my struggles right now just don't make sense. And it's not helping anybody. It's not helping anything. You don't know what God's working out in you. And Paul, God was working out something inside of him. He didn't see anything externally probably for a long time, but it's what God works inside of us that is the greatest work for us. So yes, the wilderness is is a place where we experience doubt, fear of not knowing. We experience weakness of faith. We experience the grind, and we experience confusion. But as Deuteronomy showed us, it is a chance for God to show us where our loyalty lies, for us to show God where our loyalty lies. It's a place for us to be humbled enough to find God. Because our wilderness will knock us down enough to where we look for God. So back where we started, Matthew chapter 6. Let's see if we can find some new, mean, some new meaning in this so far. Jesus said, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the, as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Give us this day our daily bread. What does this daily bread mean now? What can we think from what, we, what we've already learned? The daily bread is something that we need continually just to keep us going. The daily bread is something that is vital. Something that is basic to our existence. Something that is basic to us getting through the day. What is your just-get-me-through-the-day manna? Everyone has it. Everyone has something that, that makes them feel like, I just need to get through today. Whether it's financial issues, you're like, God has just given me enough today to survive. Maybe it's emotionally you, you just can't deal with it anymore. You can't, you can't handle it. I just need to get through today. I can't be worried about anything else. I just got to get through today, the work day, whatever it is. Maybe it's with your anxieties. I know that's something for me. I can, I can get bottled up in my own head to the point where I just got to stop. I can't worry about the future. I can't worry about too many things. I just have to get through today. And it's in those moments that I turn to God. It's in those moments that I let go of that, all that anxiety. And I just say, I just got to get through today. That's what daily bread is. And so as I tried to think about, you know, how do I describe manna? How do I describe this daily bread and what it means? It's different for everybody. What do you need to get you through today? The point of it is you turn to God for it. You focus on God through it. Because every struggle, every big thing you're thinking about can be broken into, what do I do today with it? What do I do today with it? Maybe, you know, you're sitting there like, I'm fine, I'm doing all right on my own, I don't need God, or I think I'm just going to be alright without Him. We're shown by this story that everyone's going to have our own wilderness. If you haven't hit it yet, it's going to happen. Something is going to drive you to the point where you need that daily. You need God's help daily. You need Him to take care of you. And that's where we're told what to do. In 1 Peter 5, it says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, for He cares for you. This idea of the daily bread is taking everything to God. It's not just saying, God, please help me with uh, having kids, having uh, a home someday, and having all these big goals. It's about casting all my anxieties, casting all the things I'm worried about today on him. Because he's here for that. He's the God of the little things. He's the God of the big things. He's the God of it all. And you know, you, maybe you're sitting here and you've said, you, you feel like, you know what? I've been in bondage to sin. I've felt what it feels like to be stuck in sin. And it's an awful feeling. But you're like, you know, I felt, I've seen the plagues of the Egyptians. I've seen God... You know, the, thing, the bad things that happen when people don't uh, live godly. The things that happen in people's lives uh, with, when sin is involved. You've seen that and you're like, you know what? I, I see the consequence of sin. I don't want that. Maybe you've ran free from the bondage of, of Egypt. You've seen what that sin is like and you want to get away from it. And you have. You felt that running free. I'm free from sin. I'm choosing Christ. He is going to be my savior. And you have ran free from sin. And you've gotten away and you've felt that. And you've sang sang the song of the sea. Where you know you've seen the great works God's done and you've sang about it. You've been excited about it before. But then you're sitting here like, well, where's my faith now? I've seen all those things. All those things have happened in my life and in my witness. Why isn't my faith strong? That's the importance of the manna. Because no matter what you've seen in the past, no matter what you've thought in the past, no matter what realizations you've had in the past, the manna God told them to pick up was daily. And if we don't go to God daily for it, it's going to go bad on us. What he says in Exodus 16, verse 4, is one of the main things I wanted to talk about in this lesson, the things that that intrigued me the most. He says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people should go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. What is part of that? Verse 19, And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and bread... And it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. They tried to take God's nourishment from a previous day and say, well, I'll just save some for later. That'll get me by tomorrow. He said, don't do that. You need God's bread every day. You need to come to him every day for this. And I'm here to submit to you that our spiritual lives are the same way. If you try to survive off another day's study, care about God, affection for God, Meditation on God's word. If you try to survive on another day's spiritual nourishment, it's going to go back. It's not going to get you through today. I've heard friends say, you know what, I just, I don't know if I ever really believed in God. And those are friends that I knew have. I, those are friends that I had talked to and, and just, they, they, they poured out to me with emotion about how much they appreciated God and loved and could see what God was doing. I knew that's not the truth. But what happens is when we don't renew our, our love for God daily, our knowledge of God daily, it goes bad on us. And it turns into something stale. If you don't want to study your word, I, I think that's part of it. When I stop studying my Bible, I'm like, oh, I don't really want to study anymore. But the more I study, the more I want to. And so if I don't come to God every day, my desire for it turns stale. It spoils. And so today, wherever you're at, especially if you're, if you're devoted to God, don't forget to renew that every day because it'll go bad on you if you don't. God says to come to him every day for that. So how do we get this fresh bread? How do you get this man every day from God? Well, like we said, he comes, uh, God provides for us in many ways. And the first thing we have to do is we have to be hungry for it before we'll actually take it. We learned from the story of the woman at the well. He said, you know, he who thirsts will drink. And he who drinks, it'll become a well in him and it'll become living water. So what we have to do, we have to want, first want it. We have to first hunger for it. We have to first... Thirst for it. And if you don't, ask God. Say, God, I don't want you that bad. Just tell him like that. Say, I want to be hungry for you. I want to be thirsty for what you offer. But I'm not. Please help me to get there. And that is the first step. To thirst for it. Now, just for a little assurance. We learn from the New Testament that the Old Testament is there to give us hope. And so I want to read the the latter part of those verses I was reading in Deuteronomy earlier. Beginning in verse 4 of chapter 8. He says, After telling them what the wilderness was for, after telling them that yes, it was going to be hard and they were going to be humbled by it, he says, Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your feet did not swell these 40 years. You know, after 40 years of wandering, you think you'd need a couple a new pairs of shoes, some new clothes. I don't care what brand of clothes you wear, it's not that good, but it'll last you 40 years in the desert. He said, "It didn't. Your feet did not swell. I took care of you in those forty years. That though you're in the wilderness, though you're wandering, I took care of you still. Know then your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in His ways and by fearing Him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains, of springs, flowing out of the valleys and hills." A land of wheat and barley, of fig, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. God was leading them somewhere. The thing you can know about your wilderness is the promised land comes after the wilderness. If you come to God with it. And you come to God in your wilderness. If they wouldn't have left Egypt, if they would have just stayed there and not gone through the wilderness, the hard times, they wouldn't have been at the promised land. But because they went through it all, the end was the promised land. And that's the hope for us as Christians, right? The promised land. The everything you're doing today. The grind you're going through. The wilderness you have in your life. The difficulties. It has meaning because the other side is a promised land from God. And in closing, I think it needs to be pointed out that Jesus is our bread from heaven. He tells us in verse 30 of John chapter 6 So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? That, what work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're saying, You know, they had manna from, from God. What do you have to bring us? They're talking to Jesus. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. You're missing the point. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. That sounds great. Where is it? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me, Shall not thirst. Jesus is our bread from heaven. He is the thing that sustains us every day. He is the thing that's going to keep us going. He is the thing that provides us salvation. And like the man in the wilderness, they had to pick up the manna. While our salvation is not something we earn, we do have to pick it up. That bread from God, Jesus said, I'm the bread from God. We still got to come and pick him up. And how do we do that? We're to believe according to Mark 16 and 16. Repent of our past life according to Acts 2, 38. Confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and is our Savior. And be baptized for the remission of our sins according to Mark 16 and 16. It's not our work that earns our salvation. It's just us going and picking up this bread that He has offered to us. The salvation He has given. And after that, you keep on going. You keep plugging along and you're going to mess up. We all do. And if you have not done these things, and you want to be baptized today, we can do that today with you. But if you're like, you know what, I need prayers for forgiveness. I need, I need your guys' help. We, need, we can pray together with you. We can come together now, and if it's a public matter you want to make right, we can pray together about it. We're all here to help. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information,